Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 52nd episode of the Tuesday Night Podcast. I'm your host, SBJ, and with me, as always, the delightful Alan is here. Hey, hey, that's me, Random Fact 3. My father's a Vietnam veteran, and boy, does he have stories. It's not really a fact about you. I mean, kind of. Yeah, my father's a Vietnam vet, and he tells me a lot of stories. So, so you, you you hold the key to said stories. Yeah, yeah, I do. Understand, I, do. I understand. Well, Alan has wrangled <laughs> in another voice, another personality from the board gaming world, as we are a podcast about board games, tabletop games, games you can play on and under your table. That is a real corny catchphrase, but it sticks. Uh, we have, uh, I'm going to butcher your last name, Head Alspec. That was really, really, really close. Um, it's Alspach. Oh, okay, okay. German? Is that German? It is German. And the best way you can remember it is just think of an episode of the classic uh, Star Trek series where there's, you know, basically no Uhura, no Kirk, no McCoy, no Scotty, no Sulu. It's just all Spock. <laughs> all Spock. Oh, wow. That's good. Hit like it. It. it takes longer to, you could just remember it phonetically before you can remember that. But, you know, whatever. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, we have a ton of questions to, a- to ask you. Maybe, maybe I do. I'm sure Alan has a has a, a list. No Sean with us today. Alan, what's our Sean update? Uh, still dead. I tried resuscitating him. He started coming through, but then I realized why. Why continue? So I just let him stay dead. Why suffer? Our show has been so much better without him. <laughs> yeah. No, he's still training his puppy. So uh, a couple more weeks. Yeah, but you have. Uh, G- do you want to... I, I always hate... Was that a euphemism, Alan? That he's dead? No, that's training his puppy. That he's training his puppies. Yeah, he's training his puppies all over the place. <laughs> I keep on calling him, and all I get is the busy signal because he's tra- training his puppies. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, I hate pulling back the curtain in case things fall through, but you do have more guests lined up after this. Yeah, supposedly, and I'm not sure if we should edit it out, but, you know, people will say I'm in, then they say I'm out, but we have Chris Bryant for from Board With Life for next week, but uh, it's funny because I wasn't even sure I'd get Ted this week, and that's hilarious because in last episode when we had Alex Haig, I was talking all about One Night Ultimate Alien, so here he is now. <laughs> he is. I actually, well, and we'll get into this. I actually thought the Kickstarter was still going, but I believe it just recently ended. Yep, it ended two days ago. Ah, we missed. The, we dropped the ball. We should have flipped. We should have flipped the <sighs> yeah, two guests. We should have had him on first, so he could totally pitch. It's still. Hey, uh, I know both of your listeners could have backed the project. <laughs> you uh, son of a bitch! Oh, I love you. <laughs> I, I forgot to hit mute before I said that. <laughs> uh the only thing i want to touch on before we before we grill ted here is there was a reddit post on r slash board gaming that was titled another podcast like shut up and sit down uh to summarize the post it was like i love up i love shut up and sit down but they don't put nearly enough podcasts out for me to totally scratch my board game itch i've tried dice tower and a couple other podcasts and none of them really stuck uh anyways guess you would anyone would recommend any other podcasts that are similar to Shut Up and Sit Down. Um, they like their sense of humor, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but the top upvoted thing was Tuesday Night Podcast is the closest I found to Shut Up and Sit Down. Similar in humor, also very Woo! inclusive. They even featured the Shut Up and Sit Down guys a few times. That was from Hey Roman Knows. 
But uh, yeah, we were mentioned a couple times in this post, uh, which is great. It's just, to me, it's, it's like that natural way of us fitting in without being like in your face like we never go to our slash board gaming and maybe we did once or twice and say hey like i do this podcast but we're not we're not there trying to say like hey remember guys we do this weekly i think it's awesome you guys have a positive post on reddit is kind of like that <laughs> that amazing needle in a haystack sort of thing so that's awesome right it's almost blasphemy to yeah. have a positive one yeah i guess that's the benefit of our two real loyal listeners ted <laughs> that's okay the guy who posted it probably got banned right after he posted <laughs> most likely yeah, but that's good to see. I'm I, there. There are a ton of board gaming podcasts, and I think we stick out in some aspects. But obviously, there are other shows that stick out in other aspects. So, I mean, if if we don't fit the bill, obviously you're not listening to it. But some people like what we do, so that's good to hear. But instead of talking about us, because we're not that interesting, Ted is here, and Ted is interesting as he has his own Wikipedia page. I know. I'm yes. so jelly. Yes, that's it. Pinnacle of success. That is how you know you've made it in the world. Except I'm the one who goes on there and edits it probably more than anyone else because... Uh, <laughs> that's like me and rate my prof. People say, man, <laughs> your ratings are really high. I'm like, yeah, uh, too bad I wrote all of them. <laughs> uh, I do want to start uh, with the Wikipedia page only because... Ted, no, I have to go look that up. That's <laughs> I'm like I have no idea what's on it right now. So uh, I I know I know Ted because of both One Night Ultimate Werewolf and just Ultimate Werewolf. I'm sure there's a subtitle there that I can't remember. No, that was good. A lot of people know him from uh, Castle of Mad Ludwig, uh, for sure. That's really what's. Hey, uh, sorry to cut in. What is your most popular game right now, Ted? Depends on how you define most popular. Um, I would say that One Night is has been, you know, overall, it's the one that more people have purchased. So there's more copies of One Night floating out there than anything else. So I would say that that is the most popular one. Gotcha. Sweet. But before we dive into your games, you wrote a bunch of books. Back in the day. Back in the day. Let's, can we, let's start there because I think, I don't think anyone in the board game industry just graduates high school graduates college and then just starts making games like they have always done something else prior to that and you have i think 30 books here and for our listeners (laughs) for our listeners it's it's illustrator books uh acrobat photoshop uh, a lot, a couple macbooks macworld illustrator so mac yeah macworld illustrator microsoft bob Internet email quick tour 1995. That's awesome. I bet that's that is. <laughs> I bet that's a brilliant read. Uh, but how did you get into that? Where did that come from? Is that just you went to school for writing or uh, language? No, and... no, I, I was uh, I was a computer geek in high school um, in the in the eighties, just to show how old I am. And uh, yeah, I was all about like going um, majoring in computer science and. It took me all of six weeks in college to realize that majoring in computer science was a terrible, terrible idea for me. It just was not going to work out. So what did I do? I looked for the major that would be a ton of fun um, and uh, something else I was interested in, which was marketing. And this incredible, awesome bonus that I did not realize before I changed um, to that degree or I would have changed even faster is that 90% of the people who major in marketing happen to be women. Who knew? Um, huh. so, uh, that was oh. good. That was, uh, you know, you're in college and you got classes with all these, uh, girls with the exact same 
kind of like classes that you have, and they, you know, they're interested in the same sort of thing. That was very cool. <laughs> it's, it reveals a lot about your personality, actually. I, I didn't know this, and <laughs> well, I my college personality, at least. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah. yeah no, I it's heard funny. it's like this extra little fringe benefit that I didn't know about. And I was like looking around, going, "Well, this is weird. What, what, what? Am I like in some weird Twilight Zone version of college here? Where there's there's no guys? Or no, no, that's it. So yeah, it was it was very interesting. I heard someone once told me that you invented the Bezier curve. And oh, I I would love to take credit for that. Although I did get the guy Pierre Bezier who did invent the Bezier curve. Um, he. I actually talked to well, I communicated him with him very briefly on the phone. His English is terrible because he lived in France and he's French. But uh, we communicated via actual traditional uh, mail for a few years. And he wrote the forward for my first book on Adobe Illustrator. Yeah, because my response to that was, don't you think he'd call it the uh, Allspot curve? Instead uh, yeah. Well, that's okay. A lot of people say think that my name is Ted Bezier. So that's cool. <laughs> oh, Wow. Wow. Uh, and I hate asking this as well, but for the uninitiated, what is the Bezier curve? Oh, my God. It's a magical, magical piece of mathematics. Uh, for anyone who's just slightly geeky, um, you know, it, Bezier curves aren't quite as prominent as they were back and again, kind of the late 80s, early 90s. I but, hear they're coming back. They're trending. Oh, they're trending. Yeah, it's it, coming it back. Like, Certainly. Um, but the weird thing is, so you, you asked for this, so I'm going to give you the history lesson because it's awesome. Uh, so, so here it is. Imagine yourself in the 1950s and car styles have changed. They've gone from like these boxy things that, you know, Ford and everyone else was putting out to everyone wants these really cool things with these curved fenders and tail fins and all sorts of really just just um, totally different type of look of cars in like the early to mid 1950s. The problem is at this time when they're um, doing all this, uh, you know, the, the metal to do the outside of the cars, they had to do it all by hand. So they had these steel workers, steel workers, these artisans who are pounding out these car shapes uh, constantly. I mean, this is like this big, nasty, it's a horrible job, you know, pounding on this hot metal. And, you know, it's just, it's crazy. Yet, there was also the time where the, you know, the very, very beginning of the computer revolution was happening. And so they were using, at their time, you know, computerized sorts of things to cut straight pieces for cars, for all sorts of factory, you know, uh, production models and things. And, but they didn't know how to do curves because curves were, it's just not natural things outside of a circle. So uh, Pierre Bézier was an engineer over at Renault in France, and uh, he was a mathematician. And he came up with this very, very elegant equation that allowed these really, really basic computers, because it's the 1950s, they were giant computers, but they didn't do very much. The to, size of semis, I heard. Yes, crazy, crazy big. Um, to actually cut these nice smooth curves, which surely, uh, you know, they, they would change in, in circumference and uh, radius as, as over time and, and over distance. And it was, it's this very, very elegant equation. Uh, if you know, if you like math at all, you look at this and you go, oh, that's nice. Um, and uh, he came up with that. It was used then. And because it was such a great, like, solid core sort of mathematical equation, it was used in a lot of other applications. Like, um, eventually, the uh, guys who started Adobe, Chuck Gedge and John Warnock, used it for PostScript when they came up with the PostScript printing language, which was then used for fonts. And of course, fonts, uh, all the different fonts that you see everywhere all have Bezier curves uh, baked into them. 3D applications use Bezier curves. They're used all over the place in computing kind of under the hood for a lot of things. So that's kind of um, what a Bezier curve is. It's, it's, a, it's this mathematical equation. It can be represented by just you know, a couple um, points in space that create this 
just really potentially complex and interesting curves. So. And you named your game company after it. I did. I did because I'm, I'm kind of like a geek that way. It all comes full circle. <laughs> <laughs> your first book, 1994. Your last book, at least on Wikipedia, 2011. But 2011, both your books there are drastically different than the first 28. They're yeah, those those don't 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 really count with the rest of the books there. They they are a little different. Um, yeah, the other ones are all basically they're all how tos um, for uh, various types of applications and technology. And uh, that the last two are really their comic books. They're they're my you know the cartoon strip that I drew for I don't know six or seven years um, about board games, and I just compiled the first I think the first four or five years together in these two books. They're still couple of years worth of them that I should put together at some point, but it's a lot of work and I don't have time um, and get that out there. So it's safe to say that at some point when you're making books for Illustrator and Photoshop, you developed a love for board games or when did that actually start? Oh, no, no I love board games uh, all the time, like forever. Um, you know, grew up, you know, my, my family and my, both my parents love uh, playing games. They would have game nights uh, with their friends um, you know, of course, at that time, you know, they're playing life or um, careers or you know, they didn't really play Monopoly, but they they played like the the next level, you know, beyond Monopoly and, and you know, the super basic stuff. Um, but, you know, they, we had a whole, you know, we had a nice little big game shelf, I guess, in our closet that had maybe 15, 20 different games. So, you know, we always had games around the house. My my grandfather would play games with me, um, you know, um, just uh, just let, you know, playing games, of course, either with friends and whatever. But uh, that was just a love for that all the way through through school. Lots of D and D in high school because it was the eighties, and that's what you did in high school. <laughs> nice. uh, and you know, uh, just games, games, games. You know, and video games, of course, too. There's there's no no stopping it. Just board games was video games, computer games, um, uh, until uh, you know, I was always designing games too, but they were uh, essentially very crappy. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually when you design enough crappy games, you're going to accidentally design one that's not as crappy. And so I think that's how I got where I am now. What, what was that? What was that game that became the one that put you into the field? Well, uh, the first one that was published was called Seismic. Um, and it's a game about, uh, you know, you're building this road network, uh, in, um, an area that's very prone to earthquakes. Uh, that's, that's kind of a mistake, but, uh, every once in a while, <laughs> earthquakes would happen and blow up the roads, and you're trying to complete the roads without the earthquakes getting in the way. Kind of a Carcassonne sort of thing. Nice tile laying. Yeah, yeah. It was. It actually took place, I believe, it was in the town of San Andreas in California. So you're, <laughs> you're in charge of building roads in that town, which you know that's that's a no-win situation. Sure. I'm looking. I'm looking at the game list here, and it looks like Seismic was published by Atlas Games, but the rest of your games are either self-published or by Bezier Games. Yeah, most of them. I've had I've I've published uh, a bunch. Oh, there's a bunch that are published by other people. I'm not trying to look like Star Player, Z-Man did, and um, ticked off. And there's other ones there someplace. I'm sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, the majority of them I ended up doing myself. I own most of your games, including beer and pretzels. Nice beer and pretzels. <laughs> wow. Yep. Yeah, it's a dexterity game. It's pretty fascinating. <laughs> so- <laughs> Is is Bezier Games your full time gig now? It is. It is uh, Bezier Games for the last three and a half years has been full time for us, um, and uh, clearly 
uh, you know, I'm even though like you heard me saying about going to college, I did graduate, but I'm clearly not that smart because uh, here we are running a business in the wonderful state of California, where they've made it very clear that running a small business is possibly the worst thing you could ever do in this state. Uh, the amount of taxes slash regulations slash attitude that they have towards us is awesome. So, um, <laughs> yeah, there's that. So you're getting uh, out of there. Yeah. So we are here. We are we are about four or five months away from uh, vacating the premises. And what's your new address going to be, sir? Well, I will not give you the exact address. No, I'm just of the, I'm well, kidding. A lot of stalkers out there. Um, so we got to hold some of it at bay. But it will be in uh, actually not far from you. It's going to be just south of where you are. Uh, Alan, oh, in sweet. Tennessee. Wow, we should hang out sometime, especially since I am one of those stalkers. I'm just waiting for a chance to crush on you because, man, I got a lot of crushes on you that can't wait to share. <laughs> well, I think the what would you say, Ted, is is bigger, just the ultimate werewolf or one night? Where, where uh, should we now? It's one night. Should we start there, yeah. Alan? Sure. Yeah. Well, let's first talk about because here's a question I have for you. Of course, Ted, you played and I've never actually asked you this. I pretty much ask you every question under the rainbow because uh, admittingly. Screw it. Here's the crush. Ted has been probably single-handedly the most helpful person in helping Tuesday Night Games. He extended the hand of friendship, and we greedily took it as quick as we could and have asked him for advice from things as little as, do you think this card looks better or this card looks better, to really huge advice like, what should we do at Essen? And uh, maybe what should our expansion model be? And Ted is incredibly affable and he's one of the ones that i seek out to hug at every show i can find because there's a genuine connection because he's known as one of the nicest guys in the industry and just like last week's alex Haig, another really easy one to find because he's a tall good looking fellow how tall are you ted six five with the shoes without the shoes i'm, I'm just a little under six five it's a little embarrassing Damn. So he's yeah. even taller than Alex Haig, which we had on last episode. So yeah, super easy to find. So a uh, big fan of your games, bigger fan of your personality. Thank you so much. It's Sean and I have said on multiple occasions, we wouldn't be where we are right now if it wasn't for you. So thank you for paying it forward. Well, so, well that's, really that's, that's very, very kind of you. I, I certainly think you're giving me way too much credit, but that's so, uh, very kind of you to say. Going back to the question I was going to say, because I've asked you so many questions, so I'm surprised I never asked you this. Um, I'm assuming you played Werewolf long before you came up with Ultimate Werewolf. That's correct. In fact, we're, Ultimate Werewolf is a result of me playing Werewolf and getting irritated that the commercial versions that were available at the time had horrible, horrible, gaping flaws in them. And yeah. it seemed very obvious to me that someone should just fix these and nobody did. So the best thing about Ultimate Werewolf versus many of the others, obviously, is the extra characters. But as a game designer, what I really love, and you probably know where I'm going, is the numeric balancing mechanism, because that's the genius of Ultimate Werewolf what is that? versus all the others. Oh, well, I'll let you explain, Ted, if you, if you don't mind. <laughs> so, so, yeah, and this, this, is a great, this is a great example of one of those things that um, if, you, if you played Werewolf, and if, whether you played with cards, if you play with one of the commercial versions, the other commercial versions that are out there, uh, a lot of times you'll end up with a game that's lopsided, you know, especially if you're using special characters. Things will get lopsided one way or the other, where the werewolf team's too powerful or the village team's too powerful. And then it's just not fun. And you've invested, you know, an hour of your life into something that was kind of predetermined from the beginning. You just didn't know it. 
Um, and that, that kind of, that stinks, you know, you, you never want to be in that situation, you know, three quarters of the way in, you realize, oops, uh, this, we, we should never have played a game with this particular setup. So what, what I did with ultimate werewolf was I gave each of the different roles, a numerical value, either a positive or a negative value. And the idea is if you add up all those numbers on the cards in your game, you want to get as close to zero as possible. And then you're going to have a, it neutral game where both sides are fairly equal at that point. Now, of course, there's lots of other factors that go into things such as, you know, have people played together? Um, you know, do they are a lot of people who are playing very good at reading other players, et cetera. But in general, it's a really good place to start and you end up with much yeah. more naturally balanced games than you would if you just kind of threw the cards in randomly or, you know, went to some other chart and said, well, you need this if you're going to have this and this one, if you have this and you need three werewolves here and only four when you get to this level, that sort of thing. So, that's what the the number system is. Just a tiny I, little number in the lower right corner of the cards. I've played this game a dozen plus times, and I have never known about the number thing. How many times have you hosted, though? That's the question. All, every time. What? And you never even noticed the numbers or, or used them? I noticed the numbers, but I didn't know what they were for. Like I, I play, crazy? I've played Werewolf enough to know, like, okay, we have, you know... 14 people this is how many werewolves there should be this is how many like people there should be all right let's sprinkle in the special i mean and and i've definitely had unbalanced games i'm not i i'm the number thing sounds brilliant and now i i feel silly not noticing it but i mean <laughs> who how many people buy a copy of werewolf and then read the rules you know how the game is played <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good point. Really good point. But I love what you said, Ted, because it is a great starting point because, of course, other people have different playing styles, so it may work. But it's a great start, and it's totally better than nothing at all. Uh, and that little motto, it's better than nothing at all, is kind of what I tell my wife every time. But anyways, the I, I love it a lot. And my history in Werewolf is I never played with cards, and I played for well over like two decades basically it wasn't until i was in uh, my upper 20s where someone said oh have you played ultimate werewolf and i was like what is that and like well it's, it gives you the cards and i thought how do you use cards in werewolf oh weird so there's actual characters on the the cards instead of because as a host i would just go on and i would tap people on the shoulder of like all right you know if you feel me touch you you're the werewolf so I got the I got the cards and man, did we just kick it up another notch. And after that, it really happened where we had these Tuesday night gatherings because, man, the name of the company is Tuesday Night Games because most of what we played on those Tuesday nights, Ultimate Werewolf. That is awesome. Well, that's that's awesome. That's always nice to hear. But Alan, you yeah. made you made two rooms in a boom to, you know, bury Ted's werewolf. Yeah, like, screw it. this guy. He needs to die. No, <laughs> that was that's not exactly the way it went. <laughs> uh, we wanted something without elimination for sure. And Sean was the one I give Sean all the credit because it wouldn't have happened without Sean. He came up and he said, let's make a game that competes with werewolf and resistance where there is an elimination and people don't want to strangle each other after the game. And those were our two main goals. And then. Two Rooms and a Boom was born. Yeah, that Two Rooms and a Boom is is awesome, and it's 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 great in that it kind of it's, no one's actually duplicated that yet or come up with something that's a competitor to it, which I think is it's just astounding at this point because it fills this really unique niche in convention gaming, especially with large groups that 
it's super interactive. You, I mean, there's, oh, I, obviously, I don't know why I'm telling you guys. You guys clearly know this, but wow. Um, you know, you can't get a, a group of people more animated, a large group of people more animated than when they're playing two rooms in a room together. And because it supports so many players and everyone's able to kind of interact and move around and talk and the whole time. And uh, yeah, I mean, even the even the base game and, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a snob now and I need other stuff in there. But even the base <laughs> game by itself would be so compelling with a whole bunch of people. And uh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I think it's awesome. And uh, I'm, I'm still surprised that a lot of people haven't gone off a, at least maybe a similar game with a similar model. I, I'm not throwing this out here to suggest that to have competition for you guys. But yeah, I'm edit this surprised. out, SBJ. You got to cut this out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm already working but, on that game to uh, bury Alan and Sean. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll publish it for you. So there goes that strategy. All right. All right. Good, good. Uh, let's, uh, and it will be five years late. So <laughs> based on you. Let's talk about One Night Ultimate Werewolf. I, I, everyone knows Werewolf. Everyone, we, I feel like Werewolf is probably the, the second most talked about game on this podcast besides Two Rooms and a Boom. But maybe that and Seven Wonders. But One Night <laughs> Ultimate Werewolf was kind of my first glimpse at your guys' company. And for me, being a huge werewolf fan, my problem was I could never, I always felt that werewolf was good with, you know, 12 plus people. Um, and One Night Ultimate Werewolf really gets that, oh, you can play with six or seven or eight people and it still feels really good. What was your thought process, your design process behind One Night Ultimate Werewolf? Well, so part of it, and uh, you know, I'm going to give a lot of credit here to the designer. There's the original game called One Night Werewolf, not One Night Ultimate Werewolf, but One Night Werewolf. Um, Akihisa Okai, and uh, Japanese designer. Uh, he made a, you know, I know how Japanese games are always like just a few cards and you know, just some awesome, awesome uh, ideas behind it. And they're, you're just like, oh, what a great idea! They package it and it's super tiny because they all live in these tiny little apartments in Japan. Um, the so eight-bit art, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, anyway, he, he came up with this game. It was, uh, I guess, the end of 2012 or something. Um, I got a hold of it right after that because I was like, you know, I'm all about new social deduction stuff. That was, you know, for me, I, I love the genre and, you know, I, I play everything that I can that get my hands on that comes out. And so I saw this and I was like, oh, this is this is really cool. Um, and of course, in a, a typical Japanese game way, it was very, very simplistic. The idea behind it was that, you know, it would play, I think it only played like four or five or six players at the time. I don't even remember now. Um, but, you know, you just had werewolves, a seer, uh, what they called a thief, which became our robber. And uh, that was it. Might have been something else. But uh, it was just super, super basic. And the one, there was just one aspect about it, um, besides the fact there was no elimination or moderator needed, um, is that, you know, you were never quite 100% sure if your role had changed or not. Um, and uh, it was it was more of the thing with the werewolves, where typically in the uh, traditional werewolf game, if you're a werewolf, you know, you kind of have this. I'm awesome. I hope nobody notices how awesome I am, but I am awesome because I'm a werewolf. I know what's going on. I got I got it all going on here. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a like an amazing superpower to be a werewolf in traditional werewolf. Whereas in in one night, there was a chance that the robber uh, or the thief in that game stole your card and now you weren't a werewolf anymore. And but you don't know that. And of course, the thief isn't going to say that because he's a werewolf and he doesn't want to get himself killed and, and lose the game for his new team. Um, and uh, it just added this other level of tension, which was awesome. And so uh, 
when I talked to them, originally we were just going to do an English version of that. And we got it. And the designer, this was his first game. He's a super nice guy, but of course it's his first game. And he wasn't familiar with the, the game environment or the industry at all. And so he's really hesitant to sign a contract. Uh, and from my point of view, it was incredibly annoying because we wanted to release this at Essen uh, 2013, uh, the English version of it. And uh, he was just like coming and on and all the way through the summer before then, eventually we ended up like going, you know, what, we can't release it then because it's just it's going to be, you know, won't, won't be in time. But during that time, while he was trying to make up his mind about uh, whether he was going to sign the contract with us or not, we, we play tested and we started adding more roles. And they weren't really based on the ultimate werewolf roles. They were just based on just like, oh, what other things can we do in this space that are interesting? And the one thing that stuck, which I think has made one night ultimate werewolf uh, as successful as it was, was a role called the troublemaker, which is the role that actually um, will swap or has the ability to swap two other players cards so suddenly now anyone could be a werewolf anyone could not be a werewolf the only person for sure not to be on the werewolf team with those basic cards is the troublemaker themselves and uh, when you throw in a couple other things then then that even goes out the window and boy that that particular role just you know if if there's anything you know one of the things that i can think of that i'm like hey that was a good idea it was when at some point i don't even know exactly when it was but when I said, you know what, what if we had a character that switched other players' cards? Um, and, you know, I think at the time, even, it seemed like, well, that seems kind of stupid. I mean, why would you do that? You're just messing with things and things aren't going to work. But, boy, that turned the game and just made it so compelling. And the that double-edged um, sort of, uh, you know, not only do I want to find out who is on my team um, so that I keep them alive and kill the other people, but I don't know which team I'm on. And I have to be really careful about saying, oh, yeah, no, no problem. I started this year and I saw this because, you know what? I might have been switched with that person that I saw who was a werewolf. And suddenly now I'm on the werewolf team. So, you know, I, it kind of forces you down this path where almost everybody has to lie in order to do well or lie just a little bit or lie at the right time. Um, and it, wow, it just really changed the dynamic of the game. And we added a few other things like a Tanner and some other uh, roles to you know kind of flesh it out and uh, boy it just really took off and uh, at that point then I, I was not upset at all about the designer taking long when I realized that we were making this game better and better and better I'm like take your time it's getting it's we're we're developing this it's awesome and um, so we ended up releasing it in the beginning of uh, 2014 and uh, it uh, just took off um, it's uh, I think for a lot of people initially there was some weirdness because that whole idea of I don't know which which team I'm on um, it's not a very intuitive sort of feeling. Um, it seems wrong. You know, like, well, I was on the werewolf team, so shouldn't I, even if I'm not a werewolf anymore, shouldn't I be with them and trying to protect the other werewolves? And it's, there's a kind of this little mental uh, block that happens in the, in the first game or two for some people. But once they get past that and they realize, like, oh, you know, there's this puzzle to figure out. And and every everybody, if we all told the truth, the it would be very clear exactly what happened. But it's impossible for everyone to tell the truth if you, everyone wants to win. So, um, you know, or in a case of when there's werewolves in the center, it is possible everyone to tell the truth, but of course nobody believes that everyone else is telling the truth. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, it's just, it, uh, it just, it makes me happy. And, uh, you know, even the base game right now, even though we've had, you know, three different big games after that, a bunch of little expansions, you know, I can still play the base game with people and have a lot of fun with it. Um, uh, it's, it's super, super fun still at this point. And I have played literally thousands of games of one night at this point, and I'm having a great time with it still. So that's, that makes me happy. Any game, whether I've designed it or not, but I can play that often. 
that's a rarity. So, um, you know, I'm absolutely thrilled with the response it's gotten and uh, kind of the potential for longevity that it has. <laughs> What's crazy to me is I'm going to bring up some I'm going to bring up some numbers. So one night Ultimate Werewolf had 380 backers and it made four, about $15,000 on Kickstarter. You had an expansion after that, which had, for our listeners, 380 backers for this first one. The second one, Daybreak, had 3,300 backers at $151,000. And then, I just can't believe this, One Night Ultimate Vampire, we'll get to all these, almost 5,000 backers at almost $400,000. And then uh, Alien came in at 4,000 backers with $320,000. I think that just shows where One Night started and now where it is now. I'm sure for you that feels great as a game designer. Oh, yeah, yeah, fantastic. I mean, the fact, you know, that's the the, the numbers, of course, there's all sorts of other things that are behind those numbers to make them, them where they are. But the fact that, you know, people are excited and, you know, the, the community of people and, you know, at this point for our company, we we do Kickstarters because... It enables us to do to make cool things for the people who love the game. Um, so, for this, for instance, in the the Alien Kickstarter, we did these plastic tokens that if you back that you're gonna get, instead of having the cardboard tokens, you have these really cool plastic tokens that you can use and kind of just ups the game and kind of blings it out a little bit for them. And we could never do that just in general because we just don't, you know, it's not something we could sell at retail. Um, directing people on our website, we can only sell so many. But if we do them in bulk, we can get down the price to it's somewhat reasonable. And Kickstarter is a great way to do that. And it, it's, it, it not only lets us do that, but it lets those people who are excited about the game who really want to make their game better, you know, gives them that stuff. So for us, that's, that's awesome. And it's, it's fostered this really cool sense of community. Um, you know, our comments section in, in, for the Kickstarters is always, it's like a little um, social media experiment all by itself. Um, and, you know, we had, I don't know, like 4,000 comments or something on this last last one which is kind of ridiculous but it's it's really a lot of fun people are super engaged and you know we're even continuing even now with kickstarter ending we're continuing uh that a little bit we're engaging with them and letting them pick um some custom ripples which is a new thing in alien and some alternative artwork cards that are going to be in the game so um it's just it's a very cool way to be able to engage with a lot of the players who normally you know they'd just be you know just faceless people with pictures of dollar signs on their on their foreheads (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one of the coolest things I played one night ultimate werewolf the first time first game loved it. It's like, this is amazing. And then the app came out and I played it with the app and it actually kicked it up even higher in my favorite because I don't recommend people do this because it takes a certain type of group, but I've been ballsy enough to not even teach the game. Just, all right, just listen to the app and go ahead and play. So it made the, barrier to entry even easier to get through so the way i teach it is we have one really stressful game where we just listen to the app and it falls apart but it's so quick and short that it's fine but then after that they're like all right i got it so let's play a real game now and it works like a charm every time i've gotten so many family members addicted but one night alien requires the app yeah it does. It does. We're kind of, kind of uh, gone to the dark side, to the, to the, uh, to the fully digital side with it, um, because this, this idea of, you know, the, the app, the, the app is really just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a player, 
that you know you don't actually have to have a, a living person for it's it's he's basically running the game he's, he's the moderator um and you, you technically don't have to have the app for the other games you can you run it like you're saying you can just run it otherwise and someone who knows the game can do it but uh it's really nice to, to have that moderator kind of just walk you through all those roles and kind of needed an app because depending on which roles you have different things happen in different orders um but uh with the alien um, there was, you know, it, originally the idea for this next game was never going to be, oh, let's do something cool with the app. It was, um, it, it came from uh, this this role that was developed back in the day when I was developing the original game. There was this role that we had called the tough guy, and tough guy is a game, is a role in regular hey, werewolf. The way oh. the tough guy works is that if the werewolves attack him at night, he doesn't die; he stays alive for the next day. And it's kind of cool, you know, in, in the regular game, and it totally works because you have multiple nights. Well, in what we were going to use him for in one night, and the way he was set up to be, and like he failed miserably in a lot of ways, but the concept was, hey, if the more people point to the tough guy than anyone else, instead of the tough guy dying, you repeat the night. You go through the whole thing again. And that was really cool, except what happened was nobody ended up really killing the tough guy very much at all, and uh, it was just a lot less fun than it should have been. Um, so, uh, it, it was, it was very sad and it never quite made it there. And I've always wanted, I've like, oh, you know, I love the, the idea that it's one night ultimate world, but you could have a second night. And so, um, you know, I started developing alien and, uh, this is always in the back of my mind. I'm like, how can we do this? And I'm like, well, you know what, if we add this thing at the end where something might unusual might happen at the end of the game, which ended up being ripples. Um, and one of those things is a time loop, whereas, you know, there's a ripple in the space time continuum. You have to repeat the entire night. And everyone's like, ah, you know, the first time you hear that, you're like, oh, my God, what's that mean? Ah, we just did all this stuff. We're going to do it again because now things get switched again after they were switched the first time. People look at different things. They do different things uh, through the night, even though they use the same roles that they started with. Just really cool. And that was awesome. And then uh, because clearly something is wrong with my brain, I thought, well, you know what? Why not when we're we're doing this thing? Um, why don't we why don't we choose one player and have them keep their eyes open the second night? So they can actually watch what goes on and report back to the group, which seems like it would totally break the game. And a lot of a lot of cool roles in the game seem like they would totally break the thing, and then they end up working out amazingly well. And this is one of those that's awesome. Um, we have we actually posted one of the videos for that on there, where you have a player, and that second time the night goes through, they're watching everyone else do things, and so you think they know everything. They know who the aliens are. They know who all the roles are, and that they've got you know everyone looks at them when they wake up. Okay, what happened? And two things happen, which are really interesting. First of all. That player, of course, like everyone else, can lie because that player might have been an alien or he might have been on a different team and he might not or he might have a different agenda because maybe he thinks his card might have been switched to, you know, the, the night where he had his eyes closed. So he may not tell the truth, even though he's seen everything. Um, and then uh, the second part is those nights are that a lot happens at night and he can forget things. And as soon as he says, you know, I'm not sure. Boy, his credibility is shot. It's out the window. <laughs> and it's awesome. And it's the person who has their eyes open tends to almost never win, which is so bizarre because they know what happened, right? Um, so it's it's that little thing, you know, uh, that that came from the genesis of of having this one role that just didn't work as it was in the original game, put in there, and then going, you know what? If we start um, doing this, you know, making all, you know, not just this thing that happens at the end of the night, but making some of the other roles dynamic, and making it so that each of the, each time that uh, you, you do something in night action that your night action is slightly different. You know, it's, it's within the same parameters. So you have a Sierra-like character, but she can only look at certain cards. And everyone can hear what certain cards she can look at. 
Um, and so that, you know, it, it changes what she can say about her, you know, when she, when she tells what she saw, uh, it changes what other people think about when they hear that. And it just really opened up the game in a whole new way. So, uh, and of course it's really only possible with an app that does a lot of this stuff. And my app developer is when I told him what we were doing and what we were planning, he was like, no, no, we don't, we don't want to do that. That's crazy. That's gonna, that's, that's a lot of work. Um, but he's put it all in he's, he's, we're still working on that and get it together. And it's so awesome. It's very, very exciting. If someone missed out on the Kickstarter, do they have to wait or is there some way they can pre-order? So, yeah, we're actually, um, for the first time, uh, we're going to actually be using BackerKit. Um, and so uh, we're going to be you know, posting that as a pledge manager and we're going to actually have a link there for people to jump on to, you know, back it after the fact. Ah. Um, so that way they can get some of their stuff. So uh, there'll be a link on our website at BezzyGames.com. Um, if you go to the alien page right now, you can pre-order the game by itself. But if you want to actually get in on some of the cool Kickstarter stuff, you'll be able to do it uh, there for the next couple of months. Um, since this, this game's taken us a little longer to produce, uh, than otherwise. And is it totally compatible with one night ultimate werewolf and daybreak and yeah, one night yeah, ultimate yeah. vampire? Yes. I think, uh, anything right now, basically anything in the one night family, you know, they're all backwards compatible. They all work together. Um, you know, we have recommendations about things that you may not want to do, but for the most part, I mean, if you want to go crazy and use like the doppelganger with alien roles and, um, uh, vampires with their marks and all that stuff, you can, um, you can be totally crazy and, uh, you can of course have multiple bad guys. You can have aliens and vampires and werewolves and villagers in the same game. Um, and you know, they have slightly different winning conditions, but, uh, there's, there's a lot of awesomeness that's there to explore. I wanted to ask about that just because you do have four one night games in the series you have daybreak one night werewolf uh, vampire and alien do you think having four games with you know somewhat similar names somewhat similar mechanics uh hurts the other games in the series or i don't know if that question makes sense but oh it totally makes sense to me because i know that uh i hate if i'm picking scabs or bringing up sour grapes but travis worthington changed one night ultimate resistance to one night revolution. revolution yeah because he said it was too confusing and people were getting confused with the products so the the fear is cannibalization so when someone comes up do they get one night ultimate werewolf do they get one night ultimate alien vampire so that, i think it's a valid question yeah absolutely yeah i mean for, for us uh you know looking at this it's part of it is any any one of these games is a valid jumping off point you know they, they all have their strengths and their weaknesses in terms of um, you know what they're really good for we still recommend you know someone who's new to gaming someone who's even new to social deduction will always recommend one night ultimate werewolf before anything else just because it's the easiest one to get into. It's it's very very basic in a lot of ways, even though it does have a doppelganger, which is you know more advanced. But we'll we'll always tell them to do that um, if they are you know if they're kind of the more of a hardcore gamer and they want something you know right away. They know they want something a little more exciting. We'll tell them to go for Daybreak because it has some more interesting things, um, or or Vampire, which which adds Mark, which is you know an extra layer of stuff going on. And then uh, I'm not sure when we're going to tell them to choose Alien or not. Um, if they, I guess if they, they love technology because uh, one of the things about, you know, it, because it's aliens and the whole idea thematically is that, you know, they've brought this strange futuristic technology with them to this, uh, 17th century village. <laughs> I only thought of that question mostly because, uh, I saw that Alan backed one night on, on Kickstarter cause he's, he's backed every Kickstarter project under the sun. 
I'm an addict. Yes. Yeah. I'm at 168 and I consider myself a bit of an addict and I'm trying to, you know, uh, get some help. But uh, Alan, you're you're what's your number at now? Oh, my goodness. Am I at 600 or 700? I'll I'll look it up now. Uh, As you're as you're looking that up, I I had a friend who uh, lives in Minnesota. I'm actually seeing him this weekend. He, He was my old board game guy. And now that he moves, we we rarely get to play, obviously, because of the distance. But he sent me a link to One Night Ultimate where, uh, Alien, and he was like, should I back this? And uh, because we both enjoyed playing where- One Night Ultimate Werewolf together, and I said, I don't know, I haven't looked at it yet. And his response was, well, I'm kind of burnt out from One Night Ultimate Werewolf, so I probably won't back it. And I don't, I don't know if he did or not. I guess I'll ask him this weekend. But do you think that you see your player base getting burnt out where somebody could look at it and go, oh, another one night game. Six, nine, one, 691. Continue with your answering. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, I, I think that that's with any game that, you know, there's going to be people who are going to be burnt out or that's, you know, it's just too much because, and, you know, one, the one night games certainly have the propensity for people to binge on them. You know, it is a, uh, this is just one more, just one more until it's four in the morning and you're like, crap, I have class tomorrow at nine and this sucks. And I, I hate because he games and Ted all spot because they made me do this. But yet again, we'll do this tomorrow night. Right, guys. Um, <laughs> that's that's certainly something that can happen. And, you know, the, the idea behind all of the, the follow ups to the original game is that for people who really do love the game and they want something extra, they can add things in. They can, you know, kind of get a, a new experience with the same mechanics that they seem to really enjoy playing with. So, you know, I don't I don't think there's a concern about burnout. I'm not concerned about burnout until we've actually saturated the market, which we are so, so, so far away from doing at this point. Um, you know, the nice thing about One Night is it is definitely a, a good gateway game for non-gamers. And uh, Hell yeah, it is. the market is gigantic, obviously. And, you know, we just we just finally got uh, One Night Ultimate Werewolf into Target. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that it's doing really, really well there. It does really well on Amazon, which isn't a, you know, that this, like, it's not like cool stuff Inc. where it's just kind of like geeky games. It's, you know, got everything across the board. So, you know, we're definitely getting an audience that uh, transcends um, typical board games. One of the things that we've noticed is um, people really like uh, are, are typically your, your YouTube groups and, and YouTube stars. They have been playing um, one night for their fans sometimes. And they get hundreds of thousands of, of views at these games that they're playing in one night, which is awesome. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, you know, kind of promoting our game inadvertently because they, they basically have a great time and they're playing, they're talking, and their fans get to see them kind of in a different light than the other projects that they work on, which is kind of neat. Awesome. Is there, I guess the, this can be said for any board game, is there in, in the series of one night is there a card or a rule or something that you wish wasn't in, or if there's a second pressing of it, you would make that different? You know, um, I think possibly um, in hindsight, and, I, and maybe this isn't even right, but I, yeah, I've often thought, was did it make sense to have that doppelganger role in the first game? Was that just too much? Is that um, one of the things that could scare people? Um, so that's that's probably the only thing that I that I'm I'm never quite sure of. I mean, it certainly hasn't hurt the game so far, but. Uh, I know that that is it's intimidating um, because it, it forces you to to kind of remember things and know things and have played the game quite a bit before you're able to use it effectively. Um, and then uh, on top of that, 
making the doppelganger compatible with everything in the app, of course, has been a, you know, that's it's almost as much work to get the doppelganger up to speed as it is adding all the other new roles into the, into the app because, you know, doppelganger has all these special exceptions for things. So uh, that would be the only thing that I'd look at going, oh, maybe, you know, if I, in hindsight, if I, if I knew how many roles and how many things would be doing in the future, would I have put a slightly different role mix in the first game? And the doppelganger is the one that seems like, oh, maybe, maybe that was, maybe that was a little much uh, for that time. But like I said, it doesn't seem to be hurting the game too much. So I guess it's probably not. not <laughs> nice. Alan, any any other questions about the One Night series? Oh, yeah. Uh, here we go with the hard-hitting journalism. Uh-huh. I've got some serious questions. This is also revealing my fanfare. The Minion has brought up some questions in the original One Night Ultimate Werewolf. Do you know what my questions are going to be? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're already ready for this with The Minion. So my understanding, if I remember correctly, is that The Minion basically is on the werewolf team and wants everyone basically wants a townsperson dead however what if the werewolves are buried then the minion is the only werewolf yes and then people have to kill the minion or is it the minion is on the villagers team yeah so so you're basically that's this is one of the the issues that uh people have with the minion role um, gotcha media Mm. (laughs) thematically uh, we we did what I think is the right thing in the game, and which is the minion. Uh, if there are no werewolves out there, he is out for himself. He's not suddenly a good guy with the village team, and he all wants everyone to win happy because his his deep down side, uh, you know, his propensity, his his uh, kind of inner darkness causes him to not want the rest of the village to win, um, and so he's still kind of on his own team at that point. And in order for him to win, a villager has to die. Um, and that's a weird thing because, uh, you know, for the village to win when there's no minion and the werewolves are, are buried in the center cards, they can win just by all, usually what we call circle vote. Everyone points in a circle. Nobody gets more than one vote. Nobody dies. Everybody wins. They're all happy. Um, and, uh, you know, when that particular situation happens that there is a minion, but there are no werewolves, the werewolves are in the center. And especially if the, you know, the seer or someone has verified 100%. They're in the center. You don't have any cards like the drunk or the witch or anyone taking stuff out of the center. Um, you know, it can be a little... It That particular scenario is not ideal, I think, for a lot of for gameplay purposes. And so I think it frustrates people because uh, there's no way to win because this minion is never going to vote with the village. You can't guess what he's going to do. He's going to script the vote. Someone's going to get two votes. And, you know, if, if the village kills the minion, they lose because they're not allowed to kill anyone. The minion just has to point at someone who's already been pointed at and they, they win and that doesn't seem fair. And, uh, you know, I can understand that viewpoint, but at the same time, taking it, you know, stepping back and kind of giving it, you know, that overall uh, look is, well, that's in a case where you're 100% sure that the werewolves are in the center. You're 100% sure about who you know is the minion. Um, In that particular case, I agree, kind of sucks. That's pretty rare, though. That really almost never happens. Instead, uh, what really happens is, or what could happen is that there could be a werewolf out there and a very clever werewolf could go, you know, as a seer, I looked in there and I saw uh, a werewolf and uh, I saw two werewolves and maybe he's the the lone werewolf and he saw the seer in there. And so, yeah, there is a seer and a werewolf in there. And now, of course, the minion knows he's a werewolf. He's like, score, we're going we're gonna to crush these guys. But uh, if if the rest of the players, uh, you know, don't don't uh, question the seer and don't 
you know, they, they have to really believe that person who's claiming to be the seer in order for that to work. And it gives another out for the werewolves in the rest of the game. So, you know, because that rule is there, it actually opens up a lot of other possibilities in the rest of the game. And so while again, in that very, very small percentage, the less than 1% chance that that could, that situation could happen and it would suck. It makes a lot of other uh, scenarios much more playable and a lot more interesting because the minion can claim that or some or the werewolves can can claim something along those lines. Well, that's as bone cutting as I can get, Ted. You're, <laughs> yep. like I said, a really nice guy and straightforward. So wait, no. Ooh, I got a good one. Ooh, All right. Here we go. You're going to hate me after this one. Yes. How's Tony doing? Oh, she's doing awesome. <laughs> all right that's all i got i'm sorry uh, all right. uh i have a couple more questions but my last one regarding one night is uh so you worked with indie board and cards for one night revolution how was that that collaboration and a follow-up question to that is is there any more collaborations in the future like I, i'm just i'm just throwing this out here like one night two rooms and a boom ultimate boom yeah, I, I have I have no clue how that works, and I probably have stroked Alan's ego. Uh, but just just collaboration wise, I think that's interesting to see two companies do that. Um, and you did that about a year ago with indie boards and cards. How did that work out? Did, was that something that? Yeah, so well, well, Travis okay? is a friend. Travis actually lives in the Bay Area here in California, um, and so you know I've known him for a long time, and um, you know it's. Most publishers, there, there's some that would not fall in this category, but most publishers tend to be fairly friendly unless you have a competing game where there's some sort of weird licensing or rights issue or someone screwed someone else over or something. Most publishers are super friendly towards each other, and Travis is no exception to that. And, um, you know, Travis is a super great guy. Um, he gets a lot of guff for uh, Kickstarter backers because, you know, he's not an online person. He's You're he right. And, like, boldly doing a lot of stuff so. online. Pain in the ass. And I can totally understand that. And that's not everyone's thing. And, uh, you know, he takes a lot of grief for that, but he shouldn't because, I mean, he is trying to put out the best games possible and his games rock. And, uh, you know, he, he was great to work with. And, uh, you know, it was, again, one of those things where he was like, you know, this this could be be really cool if we had. And, you know, again, at the time we were talking about doing it as One Night Resistance. And that's kind of the Kickstarter that went off and a bunch of other things. And. You know, I was totally in favor of like, ah, it's cool, a mashup of these two great social deduction games. What would that be like? And, uh, you know, worked on it and I came up with a really good plan for it. And it's done okay. It hasn't done great, but it's done okay. And it's, I I wish we would have been able to keep the name, but, uh, you know, that was not my call. That was totally Travis's call. And he was trying to do the right thing for for his other um, customers and his company. So, you know, I'm definitely going to defer to the publisher in that particular case. Um, but yeah, no, it was fun. I, I collaborated with uh, other, um, designers and other publishers and, uh, usually it's been a really good experience. I think there's only one case. It's not, I'm not going to talk about that. Yeah. The other two games that I kind of know you guys for is suburbia and castles of the mad King Ludwig. Those seem more advanced than one night. So the question is. How do those games fare? And do you see somewhat of a market segregation between like One Night being very easy to get into and Suburbia being, uh, to me, extremely math heavy? Yeah, well, yeah, Suburbia definitely there's there's a math thing going on there. Castles Castles has a little bit of that, but it's it's masked, I think, a little bit by the fun shapes of the rooms and the fun names and the colors that are in the game. 
Um, but there's, there's still some math going on there. And I think anyone who's, who does a little bit of uh, computation with castles is probably going to do better than the people who kind of just play for the gut instinct sort of play. Like, ah, I think I should get that. Um, but uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely two different markets. Um, you know, castles and suburbia are, they're, they're gamer games. They're light ones, but they're, they're, a, they're a step up from ticket to ride and settlers and other entry level games. Um, you know, they're, they're, they've been really, really successful for, uh, gamer spouses. Um, so, you know, we've got one member of the family who's the hardcore gamer who just loves games and the other, um, member of the family who tolerates the, the hardcore gamer. And, uh, you know, we'll play with them occasionally, but it's just like, you know what? I love you. We're going to play games because I love you, but this is not my thing. And you know that, and, and, you know, we're, we're able to coexist that way. But, uh, both castles and suburbia have seemed to be games that are really, really, um, good for that particular uh, dynamic of a relationship, which is kind of neat. So it, uh, you know, there's something about, um, building castles and building a city um, I think visually, certainly at the end of the, each of those games, you can kind of see your castle and how it looks and your city, and you can kind of say, ah, oh, this is, you know, I just created Detroit in the 70s and, you know, whatever. Um, it's kind of fun. And uh, it, it appeals to the, the non-gamer a little bit. But at the same time, I don't think either of those games are ones that uh, people who don't play games very often, the super casual gamer, would be apt to pick up just because they are a little bit more, you know, they're more Euro-y. Um, but they're still very light Euro. You know, they're, it's 15 minutes of rules at the most. Uh, it's a tolerable level for most people in terms of rules and complexity. Alan, you got any f- thoughts on those two games? Uh, no, I, I know that Suburbia has an app for it, and I'm totally jelly at how amazing your apps look because we're still working on our Two Rooms and a Boom app, and we have a great guy, and he's just a fan that we said, hey, we like what you've done. We're encouraging him, and uh, that's still in the works, and hopefully that will be out in a few months. But I, it's it's amazing that pretty much it seems anything you touch is gold. But to be fair, I've only known you since shortly before One Night Ultimate Werewolf and the apps that have come out. So the only thing I can really contribute is you do games good. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's if you look back before before Suburbia. Well, there's one there's regular Ultimate World, which has always done well. But yeah, there's a lot of games on there that I mean, most most of the games published before Suburbia, with the exception of Ultimate Werewolf, um, you know, they they were adequate. You know, I think uh, I I like them because obviously I'm emotionally attached to them. But, you know, none of them were none of them really hit that well. Uh, And I think a lot of people knew me before that for my Age of Steam expansions more than anything else which was uh, you know, just one of those games that I was super passionate about. And I know there was a small little fan base that was passionate about that, that game, too. For the listeners, after One Night Ultimate Alien is all said and done, is there other games on the horizon? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're, there's, always, there's always stuff that's, that's working on. There's, there's um, uh, the follow-up. So we're releasing Colony right now uh, at Essen in just a couple of weeks. I'm very excited about uh, having to go to Germany and pick up whatever European... Um, nasty virus that is going around. This year. <laughs> that's that's the big treat always in, in October for me. Um, you know, it's like get a flu shot. I'm like, what else can I do? Put me in a plastic bubble or something. But uh, last year I got ugh, really nasty sick. But anyway, so Colony is coming out this year. Um, it, America, a, a trivia game I did with Freedom and Freeze was out this summer. But we're going to be doing a follow up for Colony um, for next year. Um, that's already in the works. Uh, there's a bunch of other uh, projects. And it's funny, it's not that I even want to be secretive about them. It's just that 
they may not end up being good enough to publish. And so I don't want to talk about them because people are going, Oh, I heard you're working on this. And then I'm just going to be sad if it didn't work out. So, you know, um, whatever that is, whether it's like one night, the dice game, which doesn't exist, of course, but if it did, you know, people, (laughs) Oh my God, I heard you're going to do this. It's going to be awesome. And, and then it just didn't work for whatever reason, because you needed like, you know, infinite sided dice and those are really expensive, you know, (laughs) one night ultimate suburbia. Possibly. Yes. (laughs) Last question, I guess, is what kind of games do you like? What's what has been hitting your table most recently? Yeah, so you know what? This is this is a weird thing. Now that this is a full time job, uh, my plays of other people's games have gone down dramatically, and it's really frustrating because yeah. you know both myself and my wife we love games, and you know as a married couple who both love board games, we should be playing like all the time. But we are busy, both of us uh, running the business full time, and. A part of the game playing that we do, a lot of the game playing we do is, of course, playtesting um, either things that are we're developing or, you know, people send us stuff that we're looking to see if we might want to publish it, um, you know, new games that we're working on, just all sorts of that. So that that unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, because it's an awesome job, best job I've ever had. Uh, but it does take away from board game playing time. And uh, so we got a lot less other games going on there. Uh, I have to say there's a lot of things I'm looking forward to uh, at Essen. Um, I played a couple things. There's there's one that's under the radar. I'm going to give a shout out to it because the our buddies over at R and R are publishing it. It's called Ulm U L M. Um, it's a very cool little uh, German game. Uh, I got to play it in April, and it was it was awesome. And I'm very excited for that one. That looks really good. Um, I like games like you know. I mean, I like Euro games. I like uh, um, you know, Scythe came out, and I was excited about that. And I'm excited about you know, basically you know, food chain magnet. I played that a billion times after it came out of Essen last year. So, you know, I like my my nice meaty Euro-y type games, um, as well as the lighter social deduction stuff. And I just played, I love uh, Junk Art, if you guys haven't played that yet, the uh, Dexterity game that came out. Um, oh, from, I have uh, a question. Have you, have you played Boss Sack? Classic uh, of course, yes. I, I, have, I have all of these Zach uh, Dexterity games. That's That has been a passion of mine. Uh, Boss Sack. Oh, man. Um, just all of them, yeah. Philip Should we Lenny. be mean to Ted and Ted and have him elevator pitch uh, junk art, or is that too much? Uh, oh. I feel like Logan talked about junk art pretty in depth. Ah, uh, okay. So yeah, edit that out, and then instead put this in. So how does junk art compare to uh, Bossack? Because I've always wanted to know, and no one's been able to answer the question. Because oh, normally, oh, I could totally answer this. Yeah, I've played, Please. I've played dozens of games of Bossack, and. Um, and I, I think the German pronunciation is Balsack, um, but whatever. Um, the <laughs> in Balsack, uh, you you have the exact same set of rules for every game, and it's basically you're you know you've got a you've got a piece, and the pieces are are being passed around a little bit, and you've got to keep adding them to your structure. And whoever the person is that has a structure at the end of the game that hasn't fallen over ends up winning. Um, there's slight variations on that in terms of things fall over the person, you know. Then, then it ends and, and whatever. But for the most part, it's it's one set of rules. Junk art, on the other hand, has like 12 or 13 different sets of rules. And you play three different games, all dexterity building related, each game. So every game is going to be different because you're playing three different games. And it just, you know, it is, its closest cousin is Bowsack, definitely. But it, it brings it up a notch. Um, but so yeah, are these three I, different I games? Anyone. What was that? Oh, I'm so sorry. Are these three games simultaneous or is it just let's play this version this time and this version the other time? Or is it mid game? It switches. 
Yeah, so what happens is there's there's cards, they represent cities, and each city has a different set of rules. And you play three cities every game. So you're going to start with one, then another one, then another one. And you get different points for winning and doing certain things in each of those games. And whoever has the most points at the end of the three games wins. But uh, that way, every time you play, you're going to probably get a different experience because you're going to play three different games um, together. And they have, and, and they're, they're varied enough where it actually feel they they feel different but they all have that core building mechanism you know dexterity building mechanism together and you know the the theme the box the the you know the presentation they all they did a great job with it so those, those guys had basically knocked out of the park in terms of dexterity games as definitely one of my favorites um and and again i'm a huge huge fan of the zoc games bambolini have you ever played um bambolini is that the one with the really narrow beams that stacks really tall, or am I crazy? No, that's it's not. It actually looks like uh, you have a giant painter's palette, like a big board, a big yellow board, and it balances on this cork ball. And you start with all the pieces on this big plate, this big yellow plate, and the plate's like, I don't know, 14, 16 inches wide, um, and it's wood, and there's these wood pieces scattered, like Balsack or junk art type pieces scattered all over the board. And basically on your turn, you just take a piece off. And uh, the idea is that you don't want the board to tip over. If the board tips over on your turn, then you you lose board you know, points are subtracted, you know, from you, et cetera. And you everyone else gets as many points as pieces they were able to take off. Yeah, but it is awesome, and it's because you know it's if it was like a wood ball, you know, it would be perfectly balanced. As soon as you take off one piece, it would fall over because it's a cork ball. There's this. Uh, um, it's funny. I'm, I'm showing the camera, which is not on right now, exactly how it works. So you guys are really missing out. Uh, <laughs> the cork ball squishes down a little bit. And so this board on top squishes down. And when you pull something off, instead of just toppling over, it just readjusts the weight slightly and squishes a different part of that cork down. And uh, But, you know, you can just go too far by pulling the wrong thing off and it, it unbalances it. And it's super, super fun. Um, and it's just like one of those very cool German... Um, dexterity games that's been around forever but probably it's probably out of print now um well, you probably find it if you go to Essen. uh so here's my main question because this is a very selfish question is there room for both junk art and bossack or do they cannibalize each other and junk art wins i i would say that uh i wouldn't get I mean, unless you're a crazy, loving dexterity games person like I am, there's no reason to get Falsack if you have junk art. I think it it supersedes that because, mm-hmm. um, you know, the pieces are very nice in Falsack, but really junk art does does the same thing a lot better in a lot more interesting ways. The other sock dexterity games, like it's Bambaleo, not Bambolini, Bambaleo, um, and a few other ones, uh, those, those are totally different and you can still get those. Here's my last question on this category. Have either of you guys heard of Beasts of Balance that was on Kickstarter? Nope. By Alex Fleetwood. I met him at XOXO, and I was a backer, of course. But this is a very Jenga-esque game. And the way it works is it comes with an iceberg-looking piece, and it has these animal shapes that you have to stack on. But it only works with an app, and it actually detects what creature you put on there and they start to become an amalgamation. Like if you put on the bear with the octopus or whatever, it becomes a bear octopus and you get points by getting various types of animal combinations. So it's basically the, I guess the next level, it's a hybrid game where you have to have the digital component and it uses this magnetic system to relay to the main base, no matter how tall it is. 
and people are screaming and loving it. So I'm really excited when that comes out to see how that measures up to all these others. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. I think, though, we are out of time. We've been going for an hour now. Uh, yeah. Which makes great sense for a 30-minute show. But that's our... <laughs> that's all right ted thank you so much for having on i guess this is our excuse just to have you back yeah no that's all you know you guys could start marketing the podcast as 30 minutes of content in only 60 minutes <laughs> that's pretty you're a marketing guy we need <laughs> there it is. Yep. that's that college education paying for itself right there <laughs> ted where, where can our listeners find you and your games uh, all our stuff you get at beziergames.com awesome alan where can our listeners find you and your uh, like one game. First of all, how the hell do you spell Bezier? Oh, duh. Um, it's B-E-Z-I-E-R. It's a French word. We pronounce it wrong. They pronounce it. The French people pronounce it in a weird way. We pronounce it our own Americanized way. All right. I'm Alan Girding, and you can find me on Facebook. I'm on the tweets. That's Alan Girding, A-L-A-N-G-E-R, ding. Yeah. Oh, you can also find me this October as the Mad Professor at Ravenwood Castle, and there's still some rooms available. So if you guys want to have an entire Halloween weekend, the weekend immediately before Halloween, and it's nothing but large social games that I host, it's a whole bunch of gaming extravaganza while you're in the castle, check that out too. Awesome. We are supposed to give away another copy of Two Rooms in a Boom and or Duel, but I don't have that winner picked, so I will plan that for next week. Uh, we will be doing something on Twitter with a giveaway the next podcast, too. So uh, that's on me if I completely forget, but I have my notes, so hopefully I shouldn't. You can follow me on Twitter at Dragging a Lake. You can also follow the podcast or just Tuesday Night Games in general on Twitter at PlayTKG. If you have any questions comments or concerns you can email us at podcast at tuesdaynightgames.com otherwise this episode is hey ted say finished finished <laughs>